Trans-channeling. A medium goes into a hypnotic trance and the dead speak through them. Or do they? Tonight on Mystic Dan, we explore the investigations of Joe Fisher, former news editor and at one time Toronto's top crime reporter, who investigated firsthand the strange world of trance mediumship. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. It's Joe Fisher. Would you like to know the name of your spirit guide, Joe Fisher? Do discarnate spirits really speak through the vocal cords of entranced mediums, giving us knowledge of life after death and assurance that there really is such a thing? Go grab a beer, sit down, turn off the lights. It's time to figure out what's really going on. Real sketch. <laughs> All right, let's discuss the riveting page turner, The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts by Joe Fisher. I would interview the author, but sadly he died in an apparent suicide some years ago. Joe Fisher, he always had a fascination for the afterlife. Um, he had been studying, speaking, and writing about the evidence for reincarnation when he received an invitation from a trance medium, Aviva Newman. That's a pseudonym, not a real name to protect her identity. Although Aviva worked as a laboratory technologist and had always scoffed at psychic phenomenon, she unwittingly became a mouthpiece for supposed disembodied spirits or disembodied human minds, whatever you want to call them. You see, she was suffering from leukemia when a neighborhood friend offered to hypnotize her and give her subconscious mind corrective commands. Then this might be something like your bone marrow will start immediately to manufacture the extra red blood cells uh, that your body needs. And Aviva proved to be a good hypnotic subject, easily going into trance, so they met twice a week. Each time, Roger would recite healing commands while she was hypnotized. And within a few months, it was evident that the commands were helping to ease the pain, nausea, and reduce inflammation. So with Aviva's permission, as she was happy Roger had been helping her, she let Roger do some experiments. Not that she was interested in anything Roger wanted to do experimenting with the hypnotic trance state, but she let him do it as kind of a favor since he helped her. And Roger began to conduct some experience, some experiments while she was under hypnosis, which led to the so-called spirit guides speaking through her. So Joe accepted the invitation to witness this firsthand. After watching Roger lead her into a hypnotic trance, he was amazed at, just at first at the change in her voice when Aviva's supposed discarnate guide, Russell, started talking through her vocal apparatus. Instead of her high-pitched jocularity with a pronounced Australian lilt, now he experienced her speaking in a clearly masculine English accent. 
And as the group got bigger and more and more people joined the weekly sessions to hear the guides expound on many topics, including life in the between life state or afterlife, more and more guides appeared and spoke through Aviva, each with their own distinct voices and personality. There were some quirky things about these guides, though, um, such as their lack of knowledge of modern technology. It was as if they were stuck in the knowledge they had acquired up to the time period they were last incarnated on Earth. So like Joe's guide, uh, Philippa, for instance, who claimed to have lived her last life in Greece in the 18th century as Joe's lover in that life, Therefore, she couldn't understand the concept of an airplane when Joe tried to describe that, yeah, he was going to jet across the Atlantic and, you know, travel to England, you know, in a few weeks. She, she couldn't understand how he could possibly do that, and she didn't understand the concept of, of air travel. Now, how she could be watching over Joe as his guide in the spirit world and yet be so ignorant of modern technology is never really explained. But it was an interesting thing about, about these guides, supposed guides. Um, another thing, at least one guide also disdained being called a spirit, insisting he was a person just like them, only without a physical body. It's almost as if they didn't want to accept the fact that they're dead and not, you know, people anymore, at least not in the traditional sense. And another peculiarity was that although the guides would give the year of their death in a past life and a general description of the cause of death, they were reluctant to really talk about the specifics of their death. And when asked about why they wouldn't give a detailed description, Aviva's guide, Russell, gave some hand-wavy explanation about always needing to look forward and to it being too emotional something that would distract them from their job in the afterlife of watching over the people they are guiding on earth. Anyway, Joe also found that peculiar. One of Russell's and the other guide's core teachings was that humanity is divided between souls and entities. Entities were said to be created from knowledge, while souls, which are more numerous, were created from desire. It was said that entities are more influential, but tend to be loners and individualists, whereas souls are more single-minded and tend to prefer congregating in groups such as church gatherings or sports crowds. Only entities can create new souls or other entities. In other words, they can bring forth the non-physical essence of life. As Fisher puts it, this meant, of course, that desire of some kind ranging from wanting to help others or cravings for sex or alcohol, had become sufficiently entrenched to form in embryo an often unwanted mind-child, a discarnate presence that yearned for an earthly body. Okay. Uh, apparently much rarer was the creation of an entity born of knowledge. Entities not only had the privilege of being able to create new beings, they were also assigned a guide, what most people might call a spirit guide to watch over them and protect them in their earthly existence. Now, the guide assigned is said to have karmic ties to their charge, their, the charge being their term for the human they are guiding. 
So they're not necessarily more evolved than the person they're guiding or some, you know, high level being, but they just have a lot of uh, karmic ties, a lot of past life shared with them. And they are also fellow entities. Uh, the guides stress that they are humans, of course, of the entity variety, just without a body in the between life state. Souls, although not explicitly stated, but definitely implied, were inferior to entities and had no guide in the spirit world. Okay, uh, listen, if your bullshit meter hasn't gone off yet, it should, okay? You can't bullshit a bullshitter, okay? They're saying that some of us are beings of knowledge, power, if you may. We have the ability to create life with our thoughts and are important enough to have a guide watching over us in the spirit world. But, you know, most people are souls, <laughs> the sheep of the world, <laughs> Um, just living their lives, believing what they're told, not trying to seek out true knowledge. Okay, well, there might be a hint of truth in that last statement, but overall, we are of the same essence. We are not fundamentally different types of beings. Um, in my opinion, we are all sparks of the one divine mind underneath all reality. But anyway, that's a debate for another day. As new members joined the weekly trance channeling sessions, they were informed as to whether they were a soul or an entity, and if they were an entity, a guide was eventually identified. It took time for new guides to be able to speak through Aviva, as it was said that they had to first learn the energies of the medium, Aviva, to be able to speak through her. So as a, as a new member came in, their guide might be identified, but it might be six weeks later before that guide spoke through Aviva and uh, the person could actually speak to their guide. Okay, so souls, obviously, discouraged by the fact that they were not entities and thus had no guide to speak to, often just left the group. However, a few, spellbound by the lessons and teachings imparted by the guides, stuck around and kept attending sessions. I mean, after all, it seemed as if they were in contact with beings on the other side, giving them a treasure trove of knowledge about life and reality. They were lectured on things like the lost continents of Lemuria and Atlantis, told about their past lives, counseled on how to deal with problems in their lives, given knowledge of the inner workings of the mind, told about the guide charge relationship, informed about how karma works, how we plan for our next life in the between life state, and just so much more. It must have been captivating. Uh, guides were said to each have many earthly charges who they watch over and help nudge in the right directions to stay true to their between life intentions for the current life. So I guess that would be, um, you know, the theory that in the in-between life state, we kind of plan or at least a rough sketch of, of our next life and the things we want to do. So anyway, the guides help people stay on track and commit to their goals for that life. Uh, like guardian angels, guides said they could also intervene physically, such as infiltrating a driver's mind to increase attentive, attentiveness before a dangerous situation arose on the road ahead of them. 
Joe was always a little skeptical of the guide's pronouncement that humanity was split into two different streams, souls and entities. He described his confusion, for instance, of how a man named Bernard Vesey was said to be a soul when Joe knew that he was an individualist of considerable perception, a keen seeker after truth, and a student of metaphysics. Nevertheless, he put his skepticism aside. You see, he was enthralled with his guide, Philippa was her name, who said, like I mentioned before, she and Joe were lovers in a past life in Greece. Now, this hit a soft spot in Joe, whose terrestrial love life had been suffering. Over time, he became emotionally attached to Philippa. He says, quote, Philippa and I seem to think alike, feel alike, and see the world from a near-identical perspective. No matter what I said or how I said it, my words were always interpreted just as I had intended them to, to be. She asked him to try to make contact with her by meditating in his study room and clearing his mind. It took a while, but he eventually saw a clear image in his meditation of, quote, a dusty pathway winding past two large boulders and leading in the distance to a stand of tall spindly trees. So at the next session with Aviva, Philippa informed Joe that that was their spot presumably where they would go for their romantic liaisons in the life they shared in Greece in the 18th century. So he was seeing a vision from his past life of where he would make love to Philippa. Excellent. Um, so they would talk every Friday night, which was when Aviva held those trance sessions. Um, Joe and Philippa had pet names for each other, and it was as if Philippa was his lover in the afterlife a lover who knew him and understood him better than any living human woman could ever hope to. Indeed, uh, Joe ended at least two relationships in part because of Philippa. He started communicating with her daily in his own mind, stating that he could feel her presence when he experienced a buzzing in his ears. Then he knew she was there with him. I don't think he actually heard any voices in his head, um, but he experienced a buzzing, and that indicated Philippa was there and tuned into him and could hear his thoughts, presumably. <clears throat> At this point, far from any evidence that Philippa was an actual human spirit in the afterlife communicating through the medium, there seemed, at the very least, evidence of telepathy with the medium, as Joe describes how on several occasions, Philippa describes situations familiar to himself, but to no one else in attendance. Besides being able to talk to his long-lost lover, Joe was excited to speak to the guides in order to gain knowledge about a subject dear to his heart, reincarnation in the afterlife. He planned to write a book about their teachings, but knew that to convince people um, to overcome people's skepticism, he must first establish their credibility. Now, obviously, he couldn't prove anything they said about the mind or the afterlife or what life was like in Atlantis, but he could prove that they had indeed lived on Earth before by investigating their past life claims. If he could just prove that the guides could supply knowledge of a life they lived on Earth in the past, 
knowledge of dates, events, descriptions of the area where they lived, maybe experiences they had and people they knew, which could be verified through research of records and possibly, if it's recent enough, interviews with surviving people who, who remember them. Um, and this would have to be knowledge that the medium could not know, you know, through TV shows she's seen or books she's read or history classes. Uh, if he could do that, prove their credibility in that area, at least, he thought it would lend credibility to all the other pronouncements they made on things like what happens after we die. The guides, surprisingly, made it easy for Joe answering all his questions about their most recent past lives and giving ample information so that Joe could research whether or not the person actually existed by investigation. He decided the easiest to verify would be the claims of a guide named Ernest, who said he had been a bomber pilot in the Royal Air Force during World War II. Joe figured that through war records and surviving veterans, he should be able to verify his existence. He claimed that he was Flying Officer William Alfred Scott of 99 Squadron Group 3 Bomber Command. He provided his birthplace, the university he attended, and a wealth of information about the li his life as a bomber pilot. Information the medium, Aviva, was very unlikely to know anything about. Here's an example of the type of obscure knowledge he would provide. So Ernest said in February 1941, while he was based at Newmarket Heath, a bombing occurred on the Norwich Road, which took out the White Hart Hotel and the post office, killing a number of civilians. The attack, said Ernest, was the work of a German bomber, a Dornier DO-17, which, quote, he says, was an amazing little creature that had the gall to fly. He mentioned that when he and his colleagues first moved to Newmarket Heath, quote, it was quite uncomfortable for a while because they slept in the grandstands of the Rowley Mile race course, owing to the utter lack of accommodation in the area. Ernest, um, who said he was William Alfred Scott in the past life, he spoke of crashes, such as one in which a Wellington bomber took a little while longer getting off the runway than it should have, and they piled her up with a nice big 4,000-pound bomb underneath her. The little lady didn't go off, and the crew did manage to get out, but my goodness, it did make quite a show. Joe's preliminary investigation was promising, as he was able to confirm quite a few details provided by Ernest, such as the locations of bomber bases, the existence of 99 Squadron, which was called the Madras Presidency Squadron, and featured a leaping puma on its badge, just as Ernest had told him, through Aviva, of course. The Wellington bomber was indeed used in the war and was nicknamed Wimpy, just as Ernest had described. So he made plans to travel to England and verify more, and most importantly, verify the existence of Flying Officer William Alfred Scott. If he was lucky, he might even be able to talk to living soldiers who served with him. It's important to note that these sessions with Aviva were taped re tape recorded, so all this information was on tape, 
and Joe left a deposition of transcribed sessions with a lawyer in Canada to establish that the information had been obtained before he left Canada to do his research. In England, he was able to obtain war records at the public office in Kew. There, he rifled through the operations record books of 99 Squadron, which contained a daily log of the squadron's wartime activities. He confirmed the existence of Wing Commander F.J. Lionel, who had been named by Ernest as his commanding officer. He confirmed the pattern of squadron moves from airbase to airbase that had already been sketched out by Ernest, from Middleton Hall to Newmarket Heath to Waterbeach. He even confirmed that they had slept in the Rally Mile Grandstand when 11 aircraft were flown to Newmarket and picketed down. There was a, a note in there about them sleeping in the grandstand. However, one crucial detail could not be confirmed. The existence of Flying Officer William Alfred Scott in all the operations logbooks spanning three years of wartime activity, that name was nowhere to be found. He tracked down the surviving group captain of 99 Squadron and he too could not remember anyone by that name, only a Malcolm Scott. Then, Joe found another discrepancy. He discovered that Wing Commander Lionel had not been commanding officer of 99 Squadron during the war as he had relinquished his post in 1936. He looked for other names of soldiers supplied by Ernest and also came up empty. But how could Ernest know so much about the war in 99 Squadron but not be in the record books? just didn't make sense to Joe. So he decided one last effort. Uh, well, before he did that, actually, he checked Ernest's supposed birthplace for records as well as the university he said he attended. And again, no record of him was there. So one last ditch um, thing Joe wanted to do was track down. Maybe there was a surviving member of Squadron 99 he could talk to. Somebody really old who had served in World War II with that squadron. He just wanted to play the tapes. Like I said, these were tape recorded. Just play that tape for them and see what they made of it. See if they thought it was legit. So he did that. He got in touch with Norman Didwell, who served on the ground crew of 99 Squadron from 1939 to 1941. Meeting at Didwell's home, Joe played the tapes of Ernest speaking. As Joe describes in the book, he was consumed with fascination as Ernest's voice droned through his living room, leaning forward to catch every word issuing from my tape recorder. He puffed on one cigarette after another, his eyes flashing with recognition of much that was said. And when Ernest's voice had faded away, he declared, he was there. He must have been. It's very convincing. Who would have known about us sleeping in the grandstands? You'd only know that and several other things mentioned there if you'd been in the squadron, said Didwell. Didwell was also able to confirm a number of other details mentioned by Ernest, such as the 4,000-pound bomb, which his squadron was one of the first to have, chasing of the German battleship Tirpitz, the 48-foot hoops of insulated aluminum attached to some Wellingtons, and a host of other details provided by Ernest were all verified by Didwell as accurate. But Flying Officer William Alfred Scott? No recognition. 
Although Didwell did say the voice sounded very familiar, saying it sounded like the Scotty he knew, Sergeant Malcolm Scott. And another surviving member of 99 Squadron, this one named Jim Ware, who also listened to the tapes, agreed it sounded like Malcolm Scott. Joe describes how Jim, when he listened, shook his head in wonder and disbelief upon listening to the tapes, muttering, that's right, that's right. So Joe finally looked into the place where Ernest said he had died in that life and found that the street he named did not exist. Burning with frustration, he looked forward to going back to Canada to confront Ernest on his findings. So he did that. He went back to Canada. Aviva had her session, went into trance. Ernest came through, and Joe asked him point blank, or told him point blank of his, his trip, you know, his investigations, and there was no William Alfred Scott. That name was bullshit. And at this point, Ernest, um, Joe says, became hostile and complained of an invasion of privacy. He offhandedly admitted that he had lied, or as he put it, covered his tracks, because he was still working through karma associated with that lifetime, and he didn't want any surviving relatives to be contacted and try to contact him. He said it would impede him in his position as a guide in the afterlife. <laughs> like... Oh my God, these, uh, it's just so funny because it's like, oh, I need to watch over my charges. I'm, you know, I'm the spirit guide of 40 different people. I, you know, I don't have time to be dredging up old karma and dealing with that when I've got to protect this person. And it's like, ah, give me a break. It's, it just doesn't sound, you know, doesn't sound legit. But anyway, said it would impede him as in his position as a guide in the afterlife. He mentioned that he had done things in that life which he was not fond of, which involved people still on the earthbound plane. So perhaps he was afraid if he gave his real name, Joe would track down surviving relatives who would then come to the sessions with Aviva and talk to him. You know, the case of Ernest really does seem like genuine contact with a deceased individual who just mixed in a lot of false information to cover his identity but who genuinely did live during World War II as a bomber pilot. I mean, the amount of specific correct details pertaining to 99 Squadron and wartime activities pretty well precludes the medium from having known enough about these matters uh, to concoct and alter personality surrounding them. That is one theory, after all, that all these guides are merely made up in the medium's subconscious mind, kind of like you see in multiple personality disorder. But for that to be the case, we would also have to accept that the medium subconscious mind in trance has access to paranormally obtained information because of the unlikelihood that the medium would have known such details of the war and 99 squadrons specifically from TV shows, books, or history classes. Uh, but it is possible she was tapping into what some people refer to as an Akashic Records of memories, creating an alter personality around them. This theory posits the existence of a storehouse of all knowledge, all experience, all memories, 
stored in another dimension of consciousness, which can be accessed by the mind in deep states of trance. However, the remembrance of Malcolm Scott and the fact that not one but two surviving members of 99 Squadron concurred that the voice sounded like him leads one to believe that the easiest explanation is that the mind, the spirit of Malcolm Scott communicated through the medium, telling much that was true, especially about the war, but being careful to conceal his true identity for fear that it would get too personal if his existence was verified and surviving veterans and family members were brought to the sessions. As he himself said, he had some bad karma from that life which he didn't want dredged up at the weekly sessions. Joe, although frustrated by his findings, really wanted to believe in life after death and that the guides were truthful. After all, he was so attached to his guide, Philippa, he consulted with her weekly, um, so he kept investigating. He looked into the existence of the other guides' past lives, supposed past lives, namely Russell, the supposed guide of Aviva, and Philippa, his own guide, who'd, whom he grew to love and consult. Just as in Ernest's case, though, while many details concerning the time period and place of their supposed past lives supplied by the guides turned out to be accurate, no one by their supposed name could be found in the records. And in the case of Philippa, it was so long ago, he was never going to find her in the records anyway. But anyway, he found enough discrepancies, enough things that obviously weren't true about what she said to realize that she was a bullshitter too. And, um, you know, some of their statements concerning the area were proven to be false as well. Um, I won't go into specifics of those cases, but if you're interested, Joe does detail them in the book. And it's important to note, Joe didn't just work with Aviva. He went to other trance channelers and talked to their, the spirits that they channeled as well and tried in vain to verify their past life stories. It soon became evident that his dream of writing a book on the treasure trove of knowledge supplied by the guides on the workings of the afterlife and reincarnation was crushed as he could not claim these entities to be credible based on his research. I mean, he knew that they had lied about their past life identities. How then could any of their teachings about the afterlife or anything else for that matter be trusted? Not only could they not be trusted, but he was about to find out that they weren't the bastions of love and wisdom they seemed to be. There was a sinister, manipulative side to the guides as well. He sought out Sanford Ellison, a former member of the group who had left, who had told him rather cryptically at a house party they both attended, and this was well before Joe finished his investigations and became disillusioned with the guides himself, Sanford told him at this party, quote, anytime you're ready to hear about the other side of the guides, I'll be glad to tell you all I know. Ellison, Joe describes, was a soft-spoken management consultant who, for the first few weeks he attended sessions, would just sit in a corner listening to discussions but never participating. Finally, after six weeks, his guide was identified by Aviva's guide Russell to be Tuktu, who spoke with an Asian accent. According to Tuktu, Sanford and himself had shared more than 30 lives together. Once his guide started talking, Sanford participated in discussions more actively. 
It was learned, for instance, that Sanford was one of the rare individuals who had made the transition from soul to entity. His wife, however, was a soul and therefore without a guide. Not only that, the group of devotees was told that when an entity and a soul formed a relationship, it usually meant forward development for the soul and regression for the entity. This implied that his marriage was good for his wife, Betty, but detrimental to his own personal growth. Forward development, or the understanding of oneself, was always proclaimed by the guides to be the number one goal of reincarnation and existence. The manipulative tactics started when Sanford was told that in his last incarnation, he had been the girlfriend of Aviva's previous incarnation, Aviva having been a man in that life and Sanford a woman. They had been lovers. The guide, Russell, said, you must remember your feelings towards each other in that life. The guides told Sanford, who had natural healing abilities, that Aviva's leukemia was worsening and he could provide healing energy with his hands, which could save her life. The guides instructed Roger, who always led Aviva into trance, to teach his technique to Sanford so that he could conduct private sessions, taking Aviva into trance and healing her by touching various parts of her body with his hands. Describing this healing, Sanford said that he could feel varying degrees of heat emanating from his fingers, depending on the types of energies Tuktu was supposedly channeling through him. He found, however, that the act of channeling energy left him feeling extremely depleted and ill at ease. So, the guides offered to give him restorative energies, which apparently worked to help him feel better. But as he spent more time in these one-on-one -on -one healing sessions, he had more conversations with the guides who began subtly manipulating him. He was talked into believing that his wife Betty was a negative influence on him, that being a soul, her energies could be devastating to an entity like him. The guides suggested that Betty was, quote, smothering his energies with her own and manipulating him according to her wishes. They told him to stand up to Betty more, that Betty was having affairs with other men, that she was a pathological liar. They were brainwashing him. At the same time, the guides were telling him that him and Aviva had strong karmic ties and were meant to be together. He was told they should express their love for one another and that she could take care of his physical needs. Okay, so it's obviously, it's obvious that these guides... Um, you know, wanted Aviva and Sanford to get together and have a um, boyfriend-girlfriend type relationship with uh, sexual relations. Uh, Tuktu and Russell even threatened to withdraw as their guides if they did not pledge their love for one another. Sanford became depressed and was told that his emotional centers were shut down, but the guides could help open them by channeling their energy to him through Aviva's entranced body. He said that whenever he could feel heat under his skin, the guide said that this was due to an emotional center not being open or functioning properly. Sometimes he felt as many as 30 or 40 of these hot spots all over his body. The guides not only channeled energy through Aviva's body, but counseled him to help open these emotional centers. So they might tell him, you're useless, you can't make decisions or stick up for yourself. 
in an effort to make him angry so that his anger center would open up. Whenever a center opened, he felt a great rush of hot wind or energy within and would feel calm, confident, and in control. However, these temporary highs wouldn't last and he'd later find himself feeling bad again until the guides opened up another center. He went through intense emotional swings throughout this time and, in his own words, the guides turned him into a psychic drug addict. Eventually, capitulating to the guide's demands, Sanford left home, leaving his wife Betty. But shortly afterwards, he had an argument with Aviva at his office, and she stormed out and didn't come back. He tried to resolve things, but found himself in the midst of another fierce argument with her. So Sanford withdrew from the sessions and spent some time alone, dwelling on the guides and what they had told him. He began questioning who they were and what their motives were. Startlingly, he discovered that as time went by in the absence of the guides, he started feeling a lot better. His bouts of emotional swings and muddled thinking slowly ebbed away, and he realized that the guides were not helping him, but were in fact causing his problems. The guides tried to get him back. Um, Russell, the guy, Aviva's guide, had the hypnotist and member of the group, Roger, call Sanford. Russell, speaking through Aviva, told Sanford that Aviva's leukemia was getting worse and that their differences must be worked out. He said that he had just received the next installment of Sanford's life and that if he didn't tell Aviva how important she was to him and give her his healing energies, that she would die very soon. Without Aviva, he said, Sanford would not be able to keep his energies balanced through contact with the guides and... His business would collapse and he would become depressed and commit suicide. Unless, of course, unless he got back together with the group and specifically um, made love with Aviva or professed his love. Sanford, however, he had spent enough time away and had come to his senses to not be coerced into going back. He called bullshit on Russell, hung up the phone and did not go back. And the guide, Russell, was proven wrong as Aviva didn't die shortly after that. In fact, her leukemia went into remission without Sanford's healing touch. Sanford's business recovered slowly but surely, and he even got back together with his wife, Betty, and they had an even stronger relationship than in the past. Joe, too, after his investigations, left the group. I mean... Joe, we talked about he was a crime reporter. He was somebody who wanted objective knowledge, something he could prove. And he realized whatever was going on with this mediumship, there were lies being told. And it was no proof of life after death or, um, you know, reincarnate. He couldn't trust whatever they were telling him. Uh, But he did struggle to answer the question, Who were these guides speaking through the medium? Were they made-up personalities in the medium's subconscious mind? Deceitful earthbound spirits who claim to be people they are not, speaking through mediums to coerce and control the living for their own malevolent ends. You can read the book to find out Joe's conclusion, but one thing's for sure. There's at least evidence for the paranormal in trance. 
specifically, knowledge comes through that the medium did not obtain in any normal way. This has been known for a while. As far back as 1898, the famed psychologist William James had as, had as much to say about the famous medium of the time, Leonora Piper. There was, without a doubt, according to James, evidence that Piper knew things about the lives of those consulting her in trance that she could not possibly have known through normal channels. The other thing we learned from Joe Fisher's book is that attempted spirit communication, whether it's through trance channeling or even a Ouija board, can be quite dangerous. Whoever or whatever is coming through, whether it's your own subconscious mind or an actual spirit, may claim to be a loving, evolved being with your best interests at heart, may be very convincing with its knowledge and charm, but slowly and surely, it will lead you down a destructive path that leaves you dependent on them and less and less in control of your own life and emotions. And that leads into a nice segue for our next episode where we will cover the book Dangerous Pursuits by the Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland, Stephen Broad, who also investigated mediumship firsthand and other paranormal phenomena. So stay tuned for that. Hope you enjoyed this one.